have one, and I pray you do, to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, there's a whole rack of them out there. Uh, feel free to take one. It's, it's yours, my gift uh, to you. Uh, Mark chapter 11 is where we'll find ourselves this morning. If you're turning there, let me open up with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you uh, for these brothers and sisters and for all these people who are here this morning, God. I pray that as we uh, consider authority this morning and consider what the scriptures say, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts. Lord, that you would drive us to devotion because we've been here. Lord, I pray that you would change hearts. I pray you would open blinded eyes. Pray you would heal people's lives. Because all authority lives with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's look at the text. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So... They answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So, so what's going on here? That's the question. What is going on here? If you'll remember, uh, Jesus has arrived back in the temple. And here Mark just tells us he's walking around inside the temple now, remember, this is the same temple from the previous day, as we looked at last week, where Jesus has flipped over the tables and has driven out the money changers. He has shown the hypocrisy of the Jewish people. Because remember, the temple was supposed to be an open invitation to a watching, unbelieving world to come and worship the one true God. And yet it had been turned into a means by which the religious elite could extract more and more and more from the people. From the people who simply wanted to worship God. In a sense, the temple had become corrupt. And so Jesus, filled with a righteous zeal for the Lord and for the holiness of God, makes a whip and drives them out of the temple. Recall that last week we looked at this account, Jesus cleansing the temple and compared it to the cursing of the fig tree, which uh, Jesus also did in the same uh, passage of scripture. Remember, Mark kind of wraps the story of the cleansing of the temple, uh, wraps it with the cursing of the fig tree, tying the two together in order to try to prove a point. And that point is that the old is done away with. Jesus is saying to the world and he's saying to you and I that we no longer need a temple to come to, in order to meet with God, but that we... You and I can meet with God through Christ. You and I, right now, have full access to God through Christ. And so now Christ has returned to the temple. Mark said he's walking about, right? The Gospel of Matthew tells a similar, same story from Matthew chapter 23. And he tells us there that he's actually teaching the people. And so you get this idea that you know, Jesus is walking around inside the temple, actively teaching the people. And the religious elite seek him out. Now take note. Jesus did not go looking for them. 
Right? This becomes massively important because Jesus did not go looking for them, but rather they came looking for him. This is important because it is ultimately the religious elite which will push for the crucifixion of Jesus. And here they are seeking him out. And so they approach Jesus with a single question. By what authority or who gave you the authority to do these things? This is an interesting question, isn't it? It's one of those questions that shows us the motives of their hearts. And it shows us that they have no intention of actually hearing anything that Jesus has to say. Like, think for a moment with me of all the questions that these people could have asked Jesus. Right, for example, they could have asked, what do you mean, Jesus, by driving out the money changers? What do you mean, Jesus, by cleansing the temple? What do you mean, Jesus, by making this uh, the Father's house of prayer? Like, what do you mean by that? Are we not doing that, Jesus? Are we not a house of prayer, Jesus? Like, think of all the questions they could have asked. But they ask him this one question, if I could summarize it. I don't know if you read Greek, but the Greek basically says, who do you think you are? By what authority, by whose authority are you doing these things? Notice, this question reveals their heart. This question reveals their heart. They have no intention of actually hearing what Jesus says. Now look right at me. I want to tell you something this morning. Listen, I love you as your pastor. I love you. And their question reveals their heart. I wonder if this morning the questions we ask God don't reveal our true heart. I want to lovingly and aggressively this morning dig my way into your heart because you and I might have the same question for Jesus. Who do you think you are? And if that's the case, then this morning I want to reorient our hearts around the fact that Jesus has all authority. These people who approach Christ, these scribes, these Pharisees, these elders, these, these teachers, they know the Bible. These, these boys had memorized the Pentateuch, okay? The first five books of the scriptures memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. Like, like some of us can't memorize five verses, let alone five whole books. Not only were they the experts in the commands of God, these people were the pinnacle of the religious elite. These men held all the power, they had all the authority. And so they approached Jesus and they asked him, where do you get your authority? What are your credentials? Who certified you? Who do you think you are? So here's my first point, and it's simple. Yet I really want to spend some time laying this out for you. And that is that Jesus has all authority. It's the main point of my text, the main point of my sermon this morning. Jesus has all authority. Now, the authority of Jesus in Mark's gospel has been evident since the beginning of the book. Mark chapter 1, verse 21 says this. It says, they went to Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. They being the crowds, the people, the people like you who attended church that, that morning. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as a scribe. So Jesus shows up teaching in the synagogues and the crowd is immediately blown away. They had never heard the scribes teaching like this. It was as if Jesus was altogether a different kind of teacher. 
Now, this wasn't just an amazement of a guest preacher, right? So like every now and then somebody else stands up in this pulpit, preaches, and perhaps you're blown away because you're like, compared to Pastor Matt, this guy is awesome. Now, this is not what's going on here. He was altogether different. What made it different? What made it different was that Jesus was teaching as if he actually had the authority because he does. Immediately after this, the crowd's uh, astonishment, a man appears in the synagogue, the very next verse, who had an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. So this unclean spirit shows up immediately after the, the crowds are astonished, amazed at Jesus' teaching. A man with an unclean spirit walks into the room and he says to Jesus, who do you think you are? What are you doing here, Jesus, the Holy One of God? Now what's interesting, and I've said this throughout the sermon series of the Gospel of Mark, that one thing Mark is trying to get us to see is, who is Jesus? Who, who is Jesus? And the amazing thing about it is all the people who should have known who Jesus is, namely his disciples and the religious elite, didn't see it. They, they didn't get it. The disciples and the boys don't get it till the end of the story, as a matter of fact. But throughout the scriptures, you have uh, other folks who, who realize who Jesus is. For example, this unclean spirit recognizes who Jesus is, the Holy One of God. You have people like Peter, who after acknowledging who Jesus is as the Messiah, then immediately tries to rebuke Jesus. Or you have the scribes and the Pharisees who should have known this Jesus was the Messiah because they knew the law of God, and yet they missed him entirely. And so Jesus cleanses this man, and notice the crowd's reaction. Verse 27 of chapter 1. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They see Jesus cast out. Uh, this demon, and they realize that this is an altogether new teaching. And it has authority. Shortly thereafter, Mark tells us of another instance of a man who is paralyzed, and his friends bring him to Jesus for healing. And when Jesus sees their faith, he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now immediately the scribes who were sitting there at Jesus' feet began to think inside their hearts and inside their minds, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Right? And the implication of the, the scribes thinking that is the, you have to think the, the, the place where sins were forgiven was where? It was the temple. And so this, the scribes sitting there, Jesus just says this man's forgiven in somebody's like living room. You'll remember like the friends like tore a hole in the roof, lowered the guy through. Like the homeowner's got to be like, are you kidding me? But Jesus, right there in the living room, forgives this man's sin. You see, Mark is shadowing even all the way back in chapter 2 that this inbreaking of a new kingdom has begun. Sins being forgiven outside of the temple. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, says to them, which is easier? To say, son, your sins are forgiven, or son, take up your bed and walk. Not waiting on them to respond, Jesus then says that you may know, right? So that the scribes and Pharisees and the religious elite might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We've never seen this! So Mark is very much trying to show us from the beginning of his account of the gospel of Christ that this one, this Jesus, has authority. He has authority in his teaching. He has authority over unclean spirits. He has authority to give the right standing between God and man. They'd never seen anything like this. Their minds were completely blown away. In Matthew's gospel, right at the end, the the authority of Christ is made very explicit after his resurrection. As a matter of fact, right at the very end of Matthew's gospel, um, Matthew chapter 28, uh, it says that the, the disciples, the 11 disciples, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now listen, here's what they did. When they saw him, they worshipped him. And I love this part, but, but some doubted, is what it says. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, notice this, because those of you who know your Bibles well will know that he then tells them to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, but what we miss when we jump to the great commandment is the authority which is given to Jesus. Because listen, if someone comes to you and says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, listen, it doesn't really matter what the guy says next. You need to do it. He has all authority, and so Christ has all authority. Therefore, he tells them, go, therefore, make disciples. This is massively important. The authority of Christ, not only to forgive sins, not only to, to have powers over the, uh, the unclean, the, the demon-possessed world, authority in his teaching, but authority over all of life. How many of you guys know the song by uh, Andrew Peterson? Uh, are, are, you, are, are you worthy, right? Uh, is anyone worthy, right? And some people love, some people hate that song. We haven't sang it here uh, yet, but really that, that song is just a, uh, taking the words out of Revelation chapter 5. And I, and I was talking to some brothers from the church a couple weeks ago, and I said, you know, one of these days I'll get around to preaching Revelation, uh, and we'll just see how it goes. And you know, I plan on being here for the next 20, 30 years, so we'll hit it eventually. But here's what Revelation chapter 5 says, verse 2. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look, to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes with which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, anybody have any questions? seven horns, seven eyes. I don't, and so here's the point that, that, that John is making in uh, Revelation. The first is 
The scroll that, that, that's being opened here, that needs to be opened, is the scroll of judgment and salvation. The, judgment, uh, uh, the scroll of judgment and salvation, right? So what is God going to do with this open rebellion? And how is God going to save his people? Right, that's, the, that's what John is after here, right? This, this, this scroll that needs to be opened is like, how's God going to handle this, right? You've got, you've got uh, open rebellion to God, and yet you've got the promises of God saying that he will save his covenant community. How's he going to do that? And notice that, that, that it opens with, who is worthy? Who can do it? John says, nobody. <laughs> nobody. He says, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth, nobody can open this scroll. And what's he begin to do? He begins to weep. He has to weep. Who's going to do it? He found no one worthy to open the scrolls. So, right, this is John seeing a vision of the heavenly places. And notice what happens in it. One of the elders says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. One of these elders in this vision tells John to stop weeping. There's one who can open it. Which one? The the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Notice what this elder is doing for John. He's tying the Old Testament prophecies about a coming Messiah with this Jesus. Right? You've got the lion of the tribe of Judah. Anybody know where that's found in the scriptures? It's the end of Genesis, right? Uh, As one of the twelve children of Israel, he said that that out of you will come the lion of the tribe of Judah. Don't worry, we're going to cover that in the Advent season this series. I'm, I'm so pumped, right? Let me just give you a little foretaste of of Advent so you show up. Um, There are these poetic scenes stitched inside of your scripture. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, If you have a paper Bible, go ahead and flip back to Genesis chapter uh, 1 real quick. Just electronically it should work there as well. Just, Just look. Look at your scriptures. Now if... uh, if the, your, your uh, publisher, whether it be the ESV, NIV, King James, whatever one you're using, what you'll notice is there's, uh, there's this, the, the, the formatting of the text uh, will, uh, will be what, what the text actually is, right? So if you look at chapter 1, all of chapter 1 is this normal text. And then what happens at verse chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 2 and 3? What happens? Right? If, if, your, if your publisher did it right, it should be offset a little bit. Right, indicating that the text is actually poetry. That's what they're doing for us, right? If you look at your, if you look at the Psalms, all of the Psalms are formatted mostly like poetry, and right, that's the uh, publisher's way to say like this text was different than the other texts around it. Uh, and so what you get is you get that section there, right, uh, where where God has made man, right? He's resting, uh, but but then throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the first five books of the Scriptures, actually, you get these poetic scenes of the story. So I'm way, off, I'm way off my notes here, but, but in, uh, in our Advent series, what we're going to be doing is looking at Jesus from the Pentateuch, primarily from the poetic scenes, because all of those scenes actually speak of Judah. And right at the end of Genesis, you get a poetic scene. Where he's blessing his children. Israel's blessing his children, the 12 tribes of uh, Israel, and he says to one of them, out of you will come the line of the tribe of Judah. So what this guy, what, John, what the elder is doing in 
uh, revelation then is tying the story together for us. You see, it's not like Jesus, well, it's not like the God of the Old Testament's angry and judgmental and all of a sudden we get to the New Testament and we get meek and mild Jesus who just loves everybody, right? It's the same, it's the same Jesus. It's the same Savior. He also calls him the root of David, right? Speaking of uh, all the promises of David and his coming kingdom that would not be conquered. And this is what he says. He says he's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So when the last part of that section that we read out of Revelation was Jesus taking the scroll and all the creatures, all the elders, everybody there fell on their faces. This is important. Because what it represents to you and I is that Jesus, the Messiah, has all authority. Jesus alone is the one who is able to open the scrolls. Jesus alone has the power. Jesus alone has the authority to do so. Listen, Jesus Christ has all authority. This is massively important for the church to understand. Since Jesus has all ultimate authority, therefore Christians should walk in the world without fear. Without fear. Now listen, uh, those of you who haven't been a part of our Sunday morning service, uh, the Calvary Foundations and Sunday morning, what we've looked at is the first 300, 350 years of the church's history was filled with persecutions. Persecutions. And, and the incredible thing is, is that the more the world empires tried to stamp out Christianity, the more it flourished. So much so that one church father would call that the, uh, the, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, if you study church history, what you will find is that anytime there has been persecution on the church, the church has thrived. And anywhere there's been uh, proud acceptance of Christianity, uh, you know, Christians are welcome to the world's table, what you'll find is that the church has actually floundered. It's actually floundered. It's because we, as, the, as Christianity is more acceptable in society, more accepted in culture, what happens is we begin to lose the sight that Jesus has authority. We think that, well, the Christians are in the political realm. We have authority. And we lose sight that Christ alone has authority. This is what Jesus means when he encourages disciples that, blessed are you when they persecute you for my sake. Since Jesus has all authority, Christians should have no fear in this world. So let's go back to Mark then. The religious elite ask Jesus about where he gets his authority. And notice Jesus' response here. Jesus said to them, verse 29, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Notice his response here. He asked a question. But we can see the answer to the scribes and the priest's questions in his response. And in Jesus' question, he actually embeds the answer to where his authority comes from. You see, in his response, he shows there are only two sources of authority from which this could come. Either the authority Jesus has and is using is coming from man, or it's coming from heaven or from God. You know, we, we realize this to be true, right? Like, there's only two sources of authority in all of life. 
There's the authority given by God, or there's the authority uh, that's delegated to others to rule the society, right? So, for example, if, a church, if, if you're on your way home from church today and a police officer pulls you over for speeding, which, by the way, I'm not sure why all of my examples and illustrations which involve police officers always involve speeding. Probably something about my past. I don't know. Uh, but if a police officer pulls you over on your way home from church, what are you going to do? Well, I, ho- I hope you're going to stop. I hope you- we'll get to the run in, in a minute. I hope you're going to stop. Now, let's, let's stop and ask ourselves, why would we stop? Why would we stop? Is it because this officer has the authority granted to him by God to pull you over? Or is it because he has the authority granted to him by the government? That is, by man. You see, that type of authority comes from man. It's when we think that, uh, that the authority of man no longer has reign over our lives. That's when you speed. Absolutely. Who does this man think he is? He's not sent by God. And so Jesus is asking the religious elite here, where did John the Baptist's authority come from? Was it from men or was it from God? And so they take a minute and they huddle up. Look what it says there. Verse 31, they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And notice Mark gives us this kind of like a parenthetical uh, indention here. He says, they were afraid of the people. For they, the people, all held that John really was a prophet. So they take a minute, they huddle up, and you can see that they they struggle with the question. If on the one hand they say that John the Baptist's authority came from heaven, then Jesus would ask the logical next question, which is, well, why didn't you believe him then? But they can't say that it was just an authority from man because then they would lose favor with the people. Now watch this. This This is enlightening. Why were these scribes and Pharisees and elders concerned with the reaction of the people? Why were these religious elite concerned with what the people thought? The religious elite were concerned with the reaction of the people because their authority was derived from the people. So track this, because once you see it, I'm telling you, it's going to blow your mind. Here these religious elites were questioning Jesus about his authority. Where did your authority come from? And in the midst of wrestling with Jesus' response to them about whether John the Baptist got his authority, they completely missed the fact that their own authority, their own power, their own sense of being in control is from man. Why did the religious elite have such a problem with Jesus? I think if we can understand why they had such a problem with the authority of Jesus, then church fam, perhaps you and I may be able to uproot in our own hearts our problem with Jesus' authority. The religious elite had such a problem with Jesus' authority because their own power and their own authority was derived from those around them and another higher authority had shown up. You see, when they recognized Jesus' authority, which they rejected, by the way, but they realized the implication that if Jesus' authority is greater than theirs, then therefore they would have to submit to Jesus' authority. Because Jesus had a higher authority. 
Jesus had a higher authority than they did. They seen this, they heard it, and they rejected it. Listen, you and I might see it, hear it, and reject it too. The reason you and I have such a problem with Jesus' authority is because it is a step away from having the control of our own lives. So what are the implications then of Jesus' authority? I'm going to land the plane here. What are the implications of Jesus' authority? Of Jesus having all authority, what then are the implications? I have two. First, in light of Jesus' authority, we must respond with unconditional surrender. And number two, we must have full obedience to the word of God. Philippians 2 verse 9 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, you and I, if we're in Christ, we must respond with unconditional surrender. Unconditional Surrender. You see, Christianity is not about a group of people who simply believe a couple of things. Christianity is not about a group of people who just believe a couple of things. Christianity is primarily made up of men, women, uh, young and old, uh, boys and girls, people of all ethnicities, of all nationalities, all made up of one unifying factor, and that is an unconditional surrender to the call of Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the problem with much of the church world today is we've bought into the idea that you can be a partial Christian. We've defined Christianity as partial surrender and defined it as true Christianity. Right, we, we, we've become people who said, uh, okay, Lord, I, I, I believe in the scriptures. You know, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe that God, Jesus was God in the flesh, and yet I'm still going to live this way. That's how I want to live. Listen, we're trying to make deals with the one who has all authority. The terms of the arrangement is unconditional surrender on your part in, in order to be in Christ. Unconditional surrender is the invitation into the life of Christ. So there's no, like, bargaining. You understand that? There's, there's no, I believe what Jesus says about marriage, but not what he says about uh, how, how to raise my children. I believe what Jesus says about uh, uh, how to spend our money, but, but not what he says about attending church. It's unconditional surrender. It's a very modern thing that we would redefine Christianity as simply uh, uh, just understanding, saying yes to a few truths without actually living it out. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to the people who said, oh, you know, don't worry, Johnny Boy, who's 34 and cusses the pastor out and uh, says he hates God, don't worry, when he was seven, he was baptized, therefore Johnny Boy's good to go. So it's not true. It's not true. Romans 6 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin 
live in it, right? So what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6 is that all of life, like if, you, if you're a Christian who thinks, well, you know, God is forgiving. God loves us the way we are. And even if I do something he says I shouldn't do, then that's okay, he'll forgive me anyway. So therefore, I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. Listen, if, if that's the way you think, brother, sister, listen, uh, you're not saved. You understand nothing of the grace of God. Paul uses in this Romans chapter 6, uh, by no means is how the ESV translates it, uh, God forbid, I think is the King James translation of it. He's using the strongest language. He says, may it never be so. We do not continue in our sin so that we get more grace. If you continue in your sin, in order that you think you're going to get more grace, you simply reveal your own heart. You don't understand grace. Jesus having all authority means we must respond with unconditional surrender and perfect obedience to the word of God. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Translated another way, depart from me. Those of you who live as if I never gave you a law. So we need to be obedient to the word of God. Like like God's law tells us how to live. Like the scriptures tell us how to live as a Christian in today's world. In that same sermon from Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. He actually opened the sermon up with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives its light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is Sermon on the Mount, the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, that's not a list of commands for you to follow. Like when it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Like that's not a commandment for you to follow in meekness. Like when it says, you are the salt of the earth, that's not a command to go be salty. Like Jesus isn't giving commands in the opening uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. What is he doing then? He's describing the imperative. He's not, he's describing what's actually true. He's describing what's actually true. Listen, if you are in Christ, if you believe in Christ, if you have been saved by Christ, this is true of you. 
Notice he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's not be the light of the world. It's you are. So as Christians, we need to understand Jesus has all authority over everything. Therefore, we should not fear, but we should unconditionally surrender to his will in our lives and and work out obedience to what he says. Listen, we don't do good works to gain God's favor. Listen, we do good works because we have God's favor. You notice the difference. We're no longer working to get something. We are working from something. That's the point of what Jesus is making here in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, it's the point the Pharisees missed. They missed the fact that Jesus has all authority, so much so that they couldn't even answer his question. And so Jesus is like, all right, I'm not telling you where my authority comes from. I wonder who here hasn't fully surrendered, unconditionally surrendered to Christ. Listen, you can You can do that today. Or you can keep on doing what you're trying to do, be a good person, be in church, try to follow the commandments of God, and listen, you'll fail every time. Notice, Jesus was teaching in the temple. Again, last week he showed that the out with the old and in with the new that right now you can have forgiveness with Christ. Right now you can be the light of the world without doing anything except unconditional surrender to him. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that, Lord, we have something upon which we can stand knowing that you have all authority over our lives, lives of everyone that we interact with, both those who believe you to be true and those who say your foolishness. Lord, you rule over all things. I pray we would realize this. pray that we would bow the knees of our hearts to you, Father. Lord, I pray if those, are, if there's those here who have never done that, Father, I pray right now you would press into their hearts the need of repentance and faith in their life for the Christian who struggle with obedience to your word. Father, I pray that you would show them that it's through Christ's obedience on the cross that we are made right. And it's also the power from which we're able to live. Pray you help us this week in Christ's name. Amen.